You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, church. That was good. Welcome to Kingsway. Super glad you're here with us today. So when I was growing up, my dad managed a prudential office, insurance office. I don't know if you know what that is anymore. And uh, anyway, they would bring in Santa Claus and Mrs. Claus every Christmas. And I remember I was around 12 or 13 years old because my dad managed the whole office. I had to go. And so I remember going in and my parents were like, hey, we need you to smile and have a good time. And, you know, there'll be a present for you there. And I was like, okay, cool. So uh, anyway, I showed up. I'm being vague on purpose. And uh, anyway, I showed up and I remember getting to Santa's lap. And um, maybe I was a little younger, but not by much. And uh, I just remember Santa saying, and what would you like for Christmas this year, son? And so being the smart aleck preteen that I was, I said, I want a limousine with a million dollars in the glove compartment. <laughs> I mean, you're Santa. You can do anything, right? Okay, well, I have marveled for years at how Santa Claus sounds a lot like God, right? He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so you better be good for goodness sake, right? It's like, this is a little creepy. Like, does he have a ring, like video camera in my bedroom or like my, my downstairs? Like, how does he know? Well, I think sometimes we have this view of God, right? And like, let me ask you this question then. If you could ask God for anything, it's Christmas, right? And he's gonna do anything you ask for him. What would you ask of him? What is it you would want the most? Think about that for a second. Don't just let it be a question that just sits in your head. You're like, okay, move on. No, 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 let it sink in. Because we're gonna meet a gentleman in today's text and he has something, he wants a limousine with a million dollars of gold compartment. It's actually bigger than that. If you can imagine such a thing. He is desperate but what he doesn't know is what he really needs. We're gonna see that. So if you're joining us today, we've been studying the book of Luke since December. We took a break in early January. We're coming back to it. We took a break for Easter. We're coming back to it. We're just gonna keep doing that throughout this year until we get all the way through the book of Luke. And uh, we're in no hurry. We just wanna learn who Jesus is and what he's up to. So let's open our Bibles. If you have one, you can open it up to Luke chapter five. We'll be in the middle of Luke five. If you don't know how to use a Bible, you didn't bring a Bible, you don't have a Bible app, no worries. Everything that I read today is gonna be on the screen. You can just follow along with me. So Luke chapter five, verse 17, here's where we're picking up, ready? One day, Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. That's relevant to a little bit later. We'll get to that. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now, before I go any further, there's going to be something that I have to talk about at a very high level today, and I'm going to recommend a book and a resource to you for those who want to go deeper, who want to understand more. It's an amazing book, but let's just talk about that thing for a second. Here we see in this very last verse, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus. And what we see is the Lord is separate from Jesus. The Lord here is referring to God himself. The word Lord literally just means master or ruler. It's just one of the titles that we give to God. Herein lies the thing. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, we're going to see Jesus referred to as Lord. In fact, when we baptize you, we say, I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And the reason that's important today is throughout today's text, we're going to deal with this underlying overarching question about the identity of Jesus himself. It's been said that Jesus is a great moral teacher. 
It's been said that Jesus never himself claims to be God. But by the end of just today's message, you will not be able to say that and be authentic. You can claim it all you want, but the evidence of just today's chapter will not allow you to claim that for long. And the question in the back of our minds is, what does that mean for me? If Jesus is not just a good man, he was not just a good teacher like Gandhi or somebody else, if he actually was God in the flesh, what does that mean for me? All right, now what this is beginning to get to is something called Trinitarian language. Trinitarian language. What that means is God is a triune God. Three and one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Son, God is the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And I don't have time to unpack all of that. But just in case you're wondering, there's a great little book I wanna quote from. This is called uh, uh, Delighting in the Trinity. I'll show you the book in a minute, but here's a a great quote. It's gonna be a long morning, a great quote. For God is triune, it means he's a trinity, and it is as triune that he is so good and desirable. The author, Dr. Michael Reeves, he makes an amazing point throughout the book that for all eternity, God has been a father. And I get it, for some of you, that might not land in a good way because maybe you didn't have a good dad here on earth, so your view of dad is messed up. But see, that's not God. That was your dad or your stepdad or some other figure in your life playing the role of dad. But see, God is a perfect father. He's always provided. He's always been loving. He's always been kind. He's always been encouraging. And Jesus, his identity for eternity, not just here on earth, is as a son. And Jesus has always loved the father and the father has always loved the son. In fact, it could be said that God has always bestowed love on his son and Jesus has always been loved. He's always been the the one receiving the love. If you wanna know more about how this dynamic plays out, I think Dr. Reeves does a phenomenal job of making the Trinity accessible, but I'm not gonna lie. There are moments that you're going into the deep end of theology. Here's a picture of what the book looks like. In case you're curious, Delighting in the Trinity, an introduction to the Christian faith by Michael Reeves. I've been using this as a resource to teach our staff and our staff worship times once a month. So I highly recommend it if you're wanting to look further. Let's get back into today because we're gonna see more of this dynamic play out throughout today. And uh, I don't have time to go any deeper on the Trinity and cover the ground. I want to cover. So verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. Now, if you were to simply ask yourself this question, what do you think a paralyzed man would ask of God? I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? It's not a limousine with a million dollars of glove compartment. I would trade that happily in a moment if you could just heal my body, if you could just fix this problem. We don't know how he got into this state. It doesn't tell us if he was born this way or if he had an accident. What's interesting is if you kind of let your mind just start to play this this mental exercise, hey, how did he get here? Did one of these friends do something that injured him and they now feel responsible? Was he born this way? Did he make a mistake one day? I mean, do you know anybody who's ever made a mistake that left them with a permanent injury? I mean, I know plenty of people and that's their story. And we aren't told exactly how this man got to his paralyzed state, but we are told how this man got to the house that day. His friends carried him. But they get there and they got a problem. It says, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Remember who it said in the very first verse, I think it was verse 16, right? Who is there that day? 
the Pharisees and the scribes, right? So what you have is you have the religious elite, the people who should be able to recognize Jesus the most, but they are the most blind to who Jesus is. They can't see what's right in front of them, but they are taking all of the premier spots so that these guys, friends, they can't get them to Jesus. And this is one of those little side notes that we got to anchor ourselves to today. It is really easy for us to become religiously elite. And when we do, we can be, we got to be careful because we can prevent other people from coming to Jesus. We become a shield that like blocks them from Jesus and Jesus from them. And perhaps it's the way we treat other people. It's the way we judge other people. It's the way we're harsh and condemning with other people. We're sitting around and we're just talking about what we saw in the news or this new thing. And next thing you know, we're making it harder for people to find Jesus who need desperate healing. Now, his friends are not going to let that be the end of the story. They've come a long way. They've carried their friend to see Jesus, but they can't get in to get their friend healing. So they get this grandiose idea. Now, it's common in that day it's, it, that, that there would be two stories to houses. We don't know exactly how many stories this house had. But it was common that there would be two stories. And even if there was just one story, what would happen is they would have a roof. And there would be usually some sort of center beam going across the roof. And then there would be uh, some sort of a thatch on top. It says here that they dig through the clay tiles. That's what it says. At least I think it's in the book of Mark it says that. But the word clay literally just means not like we think of like our Spanish tiles, maybe if you think of that, but more like mud and clay mixed with uh, various kinds of, you know, leaves or whatnot. Not leaves, that's not the right word, but thatch. That would be the right word. And you mix it together. So when I was in Israel a year ago, I took a picture of two different roofs. We went to Nazareth, where Jesus' hometown was, and uh, they have, it's weird, because like, there's all these like, city buildings and hotels and condos and things, and then there's this little nugget on a hillside where they've tried to recreate what it would have looked like in the first century. So you're standing there with your back towards like all these condos and tall buildings and cars and noise of everyday life. And yet there's like this brief moment where it's like you've transported back in time. And so you kind of, they've recreated like a village, what it would have looked like and houses and stuff. So I took two pictures I want to show you quickly just to give you an idea. Here's the first picture. And in this first picture, this is literally, they created a woodworking studio because Jesus' dad was a carpenter, and so most likely Jesus was a carpenter, and so this is just what a carpentry studio would have looked like. There's lots of things I could say about this on another day. I just wanna point out the roof. You could kind of see some beams. In this case, they have many beams going in, and you could kind of see they put like some bamboo or something up here. Most likely that's not exact, but you get an idea of what it could have looked like. Here's a picture inside a local synagogue. They've rebuilt a synagogue about what it looked like. This one is probably much closer to what it would have looked like, but similar. You could see some wood beams going across. They've used, again, something like bamboo. It's just easier today. But you get an idea. If there's just one center beam going in here and then a thatch roof mixed with clay and mud, that the friends take their paralyzed friend up and they set him down and they just start to dig, it wouldn't be hard. They would have to chip away at the ceiling in order to get a hole big enough to lower their friend through. If it was a single-story building, you're talking about six feet. So it'd be come up to about my shoulders. That's about how tall it would have been. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Uh, still, I don't know if people are joking when they say it, but I see people in public, they're like, are you Matt? You're shorter than I thought you would have been. I just heard that twice in the last two weeks. <laughs> Six foot ceiling. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> Six foot ceiling. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Move on. Okay, here we go. So... 
And you can imagine they had to dig a hole. So now everybody down below who's meeting and listening and talking to Jesus, everybody down below, what's happening to them? There's a bunch of debris falling all around them. But part of what's happening is these friends are determined. They've brought their friend to see Jesus and nothing is gonna slow them down. And what would it be like to have that kind of friendship in your life? People who are so committed to your good that nothing is gonna slow them down from doing what is best for you. Years ago, I came to this definition of love. Love means me doing what is best for you, not necessarily what you want me to do, not necessarily what you've asked me to do, but me doing what is best for you. And every parent who has a child knows that's what it means to love your children. It's not to give them whatever they want whenever they ask. If you love them, you do what is best for them, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it hurts, even if it's frustrating. But see, this can, when you have this view of love, then you can look at God through this lens and you say, what if whatever pain I'm currently going through, what if this is God doing what is best for me? What if what I'm going through is God's way of correcting me, rebuking me, disciplining me, or answering my bigger, more ultimate prayers? Even the ones that I'm not sure I was verbalizing the right way because I was asking for this, but God was doing that. And then what is it like to have friends around me who will carry me to God himself who will do that in my life? Luke 5, 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, this is awkward. I mean, they literally just dug through the roof to lower this man to Jesus so he could heal him. And Jesus is clearly not clued into what this man needs because he looks at the paralyzed man on a mat with friends in the ceiling. I'm not even 100% sure how they lowered him down. They must have built some sort of contraption or it's whatever they carried him on, had ropes or something. And since it's only six feet or so off the ground, it's not that hard to imagine that they got him down there, but that's still a three or four foot gap to get him to the ground. And Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and he says, your sins are forgiven, not get up and walk, not you are healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. In Tim Keller's book that he just wrote on forgiveness, great book, I highly recommend it. He says this, For a moment, imagine yourself as the paralyzed man. You would have felt, and if you had a bold personality, you might have actually said, uh, thanks. But isn't it obvious I have a more urgent need here? And if you had said that, Jesus would have answered, no, you don't. Let that sink in for a second. Why would this paralyzed man not have a more urgent need? And the reality is every single person that Jesus healed of blindness or perhaps some physical disability or they were deaf or even the men he raised from the dead, they all died. You know how I know? They aren't still here. And so while our bodies break down and this world breaks down, And Jesus could heal us of every single physical ailment. There's also a bigger thing going on in all of us, and that thing is going to last forever. 
And that is the brokenness that we feel and experience between God and others because of our sin. I don't know if this paralyzed man did something tragic that created his own paralyzation. I don't know. It doesn't say that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how he got here. Jesus is trying to take him to a deeper level and understand your biggest problem in life is not this physical thing that's keeping you from doing all the things you see your friends and family doing. The biggest thing in your life is the relationship with God himself, and I'm here to fix that. Just recently, um, I met with a couple, and I won't go into any other story, but there's just so much pain and so much brokenness in their story from things that they've done to each other or not done to each other over the years. And I find this often in couples. It's part of what happens when we try to take two and make them one flesh, right? Our selfish pride and selfishness often gets in the way and we hurt each other and wound each other with our actions and with our words and it creates this pain and this brokenness. But what happens in all of us is we tend to think, and, and me included, right? But we tend to think, God, you need to fix that person. That person is broken. And you're probably right in your evaluation. It's just that so are they. Let that sink in for a minute, right? And so when they're looking at you and thinking, you, God, you've got to fix that person. That person is so broken. And what it shows, what it reveals is the deeper thing that all of us need is a healthy, vibrant relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit because he loves you and he cares about you. But see, this creates a conundrum because Jesus is surrounded by a group, but the, the people closest to him are the religious elites. And they know, they know for a fact that Jesus doesn't have the right to do this. At least they think they know. In fact, it says in verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Now, blasphemy is specifically to speak against God. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they say. Jesus knows what's in their heart. It's not an accident that he does all of this. He's giving us a clue into his true identity. I am not just another prophet. I am not just another moral teacher. I am here to do something special. Jesus is not just a prophet or a good man. In fact, he is claiming to be God in the flesh. And that's huge for us because we're not just coming to a book with teachings about stories from a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. This book that we celebrate, that we're reading from, the Bible, we believe that it was written by God through human authors to tell us the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that God is not counting our sins against us, that he loves us so much that he sent his only son, that anybody who will place their faith, their life, their trust in him can have eternal life, can have their sins forgiven, can have a fresh beginning, can have the power to live differently in everyday life so you don't have to repeat the patterns and the habits of your past or your parents' past past or your grandparents past you can begin fresh and anew and truly God can make all things new yeah we can clap for God but see Jesus because he's God it says in verse 22 Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked why are you thinking these things in your hearts which is easier to say guys your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk okay let's just stop for a second <laughs> which is easier to say I mean, I could say them both. 
But if I'm going to mean them both, I mean, for Matt Nickerson, because I have no authority to forgive sins. It would be easier to say, get up and walk. But what if you were an infinite God who has done nothing but infinitely love and your creation just continues to rebel against you and crush you and hurt you and destroy you and disobey you and hurt each other? I mean, the sins that the human race has piled up against God himself, oh man, they're massive, massive. So which would be easier to say, I'm willing to forgive all of that and not hold everybody accountable or just say, get up and walk. Jesus says, but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. I want to go down this road for just a minute. Jesus is called the Son of Man 88 times in the New Testament. See it over here, the Son of Man. The phrase Son of Man is a title, but it's a title that triggers something specific. It comes from somewhere. So for those of you who enjoy deeper Bible study, let me take you to that for a second. For those of you who are like, what are we talking about? When Jesus shows up, so much of what Jesus did was prophetic. It was told to us hundreds or thousands of years beforehand. And I wanna show this to you because in Daniel chapter seven, we see a prophecy from the prophet Daniel who was hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. And it says this in Daniel seven. Daniel says, in my vision. So this is Daniel, he has a vision at night. And he says, I looked and there before me was one like, what's the phrase there? A son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. I'll explain all this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His domain is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. I read that wrong. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, has a vision where he sees one like the Son of Man seated next to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is a reference to God. It's a title for God the Father. And here he sees one like the son of man and he's next to him on the throne. Even David could not sit next to God on his throne and David was considered the greatest king in the Old Testament. Moses could not sit next to God on his throne and Moses was considered the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. I could keep going, but you get the point. But yet in his vision, Daniel sees one who is like the son of man and he's seated next to God and everybody's worshiping him. Who can worship someone other than God himself unless that other person is God himself? Do you see it? So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, there are three or four major things that he's accomplishing. Number one, it shows his humanity, his humanity. Do you know what the son of a man is? A man. Just in case you're unclear, like that title is not an accident. Son of man means I am a human. 
But the fact that I am next to the ancient of days and my kingdom will last forever and I will dominion and power over all things and people will worship me like Daniel says means that I'm not just a human. There's something else, something special about me. Son of man shows us the humility of Jesus because while God in heaven, he was able to take on flesh and dwell among us. He left the power where he was worshiped in heaven to come to earth where we would spit on him, pull out his beard and crucify him but it also shows his holiness. Because by calling himself son of man, you're looking at someone, you go, you look like me, and yet you do things that I can't explain and I can't do. The fourth one, if you would wanna add it in there, I just couldn't find an H word, is prophecy. The son of man shows to us that Jesus fulfills prophecy. But I had three H's going, and so I didn't wanna you know, mess with my H thing. Make the P silent, prophecy. All right, we're moving on. The reason I say all this is because I want you to understand that when Jesus calls himself son of man, he is calling himself something special and unique in your life and in mine. This is so abundantly clear to the Pharisees and the scribes that in another text, they try to kill him for it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64, Jesus is right there in this moment, right before he goes to the cross and he's being tried. And they keep trying to come up with some way to try him. And they can't find anything to stick. They can't find any charges he's guilty of. And so he's just keeping silent while they keep throwing these false charges. He says, you have said so. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. As a direct reference to Daniel chapter seven that I just read to you. So Jesus is here on trial and they can't find any reason to kill him. They're trying, but they keep contradicting each other. And Jesus is just like, hey, I can't let this thing end. So let me give you one very clear piece of evidence. I'm the son of man. And it says in the very next verse, then the high priest tore his clothes. This is a sign of of repentance or grief or sorrow. He's like, oh, and he tears his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. And this leads to Jesus being crucified. They could find nothing that he did wrong except he claimed to be, he claimed to be the son of man. We don't get the luxury of coming to Jesus and thinking of him as just a good teacher. We only have the option before us to come to Jesus and see who he claimed himself to be. And the people in his day heard it loud and clear. It's just in our day, so far removed from the culture, we don't understand what he's saying. He is Lord. And that's actually really, really, really good news for us. Because if he is Lord, and then he says your sins are forgiven. It means something. Look what happens to the paralyzed man, Luke 5. Immediately, immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Okay, so for those of you who are new to Kingsway, I had a major surgery last November. Short version, I broke my pelvic bone at 13 years old, showing off at a school dance in front of some girls. Thankfully, none of those girls were impressed, and so I didn't end up marrying any of them. But somewhere about two years ago, while training for a half marathon, I re-injured that injury. I don't know what I did. God connected me to an expert here in the Indianapolis area, 
and he's like the guy. People fly from all over the United States to see this guy. He literally cut half my hamstring off the bone, something in that ballpark, cut a piece of bone out of my pelvic bone, and then screwed my hamstring back into the bone. It was eight, six to eight weeks of just bed rest. I was only allowed to get out of bed to go to the restroom. And then it's been months now of physical therapy and trying to rebuild it. The last three or four days, for reasons I don't know, have just been tremendously painful. The doctor doesn't even know if it's going to fix the problem. Why do I say all of that? First of all, people keep asking me for an update, so there you go. Second of all, <laughs> second of all, it's taken weeks and months of healing. The doctor believes, just stick with it. I think you've got a lot of inflammation, and over time, it'll get better. I don't know how long this man's been paralyzed, but I get the feeling it didn't happen the day before. He's been paralyzed for a long, long time. And Jesus said, just so you know that I have the power to forgive sins, get up and walk. And it says, immediately, this man got up and started walking. I'm telling you, as someone who recently had a surgery, you don't get up immediately and walk anywhere. It takes time for your muscles to get strong. It takes time for your body to build back up. It takes time to figure these things out again, to get limber again, but not when Jesus heals. Because when Jesus heals, you get full power, full strength, full wholeness, and you get it right now. Right now. But the bigger issue for this man is not his healing. The bigger issue for this man is that he has a broken relationship with God. In that same book by Tim Keller, he says this. It's likely that the man had been feeling, "Ah, if I could just walk again, then I'd be happy. I'd never complain. I'd be content. But Jesus, as it were, is saying, look around you at all these people. They can all walk. Are their hearts filled with contentment? Are they all happy? If I only heal you, you'll be overjoyed for a while, but then you will become like everyone else. I want you to stop for a second. I got another part of the quote I want to read, but I want you to think about it. When I asked you earlier with my silly limousine, million dollars in glove compartment illustration, right? When I asked you, if you could ask God for anything, any one thing, what would it be? Whatever you came up with, is it really what you need? Don't get me wrong, I get it. There's something in front of you that is such a massive mountain to climb, you aren't sure how to climb it. You aren't sure how to overcome it. You don't have the answers, I get it. But what if the thing you really need, the deeper thing you really need is a right relationship with your heavenly father? And then what if through getting that, you get everything else? What if through getting that, you actually find the healing that you really needed all along also? Tim Keller goes on, he says, no. What the man needed was forgiveness. Forgiveness gets down to the bottom of things, to the alienation we feel from God and from ourselves because of our wrongdoing. Jesus was saying, I want to show you that the deepest need of your nature is for me. Only I can bestow perfect love, new identity, endless comfort, hope, and glory. And the doorway into all of that is to know forgiveness. It's time to open that door and walk through it. 
The message of Jesus to the paralyzed man is the same message we need today. We all come to Jesus with these things that are in front of us that are big, big, they're real. But what we really need is something else. Because see, in Christ, your worst day can be completely forgiven. And I don't know that we fully realize or appreciate how much our worst day has completely defined us. It's changed the way that we view those around us. It's impacted the way that we live and love and interact with others. We can't even look people in the eyes because of our shame or our pain from the things we've done or others have done to us. But in Jesus, what we find is he heals all of those things. He renews, he restores, he rebuilds, he forgives. And as Tim Keller said, forgiveness is like a doorway into the relationship with God that we're longing for to get all of that in our lives. I'm not inviting you to know a theory. I'm not inviting you to know a person described in a book. I'm inviting you to know the living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he wants to be Lord over your life in every facet of your life. He wants to teach you to walk with him, that you can trust him, that he will provide for you, that he will meet your needs, and that he already secured all of that on the cross and in his resurrection. I don't know where this lands for you, but I don't want you to miss an opportunity to respond. Our worship team is gonna come out in a moment and they're gonna sing a song for us. And the song is called Another in the Fire. And it's making a reference to an Old Testament story. These three guys are just going through it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're gonna be thrown into the flames because of their faith in God. And literally they say, so be it, right? And they get thrown into this massive furnace where they should have been consumed in an instant. And instead, they're living inside this furnace. And the king, who's looking at them, and he's like, it looks like there's another person in there. Looks like there's another person in the fire, one like like an angel, like the son of God. (laughs) And the power of that song is whenever we're going through it, we're reminded that God became man, took on flesh, and he dwelt among us so that we would know and would always know There's another in the fire with us. So whatever you're going through today, I just wanna encourage you to seek Jesus. And by the end of the service, we'll tell you how. We'll just say, look, we've got a team of people you could talk to at any moment when you're ready to know more about what it means to have Jesus in your life. What I wanna do is pray. And if you wanna sing the song, sing. If you wanna sit, sit. If you wanna stand, stand. But whatever you do, use this moment to engage with your heavenly father who's here with you right now. God, Would you move in this place and do that thing that only you could do? I don't know where everybody is today in their stories, God, but I know that from talking with people, some of us have made decisions in our lives or others have made decisions in our lives and they're so big and they're so painful and we don't know where to go or what to do with them. But for a brief moment, God, would your Holy Spirit just make clear to people, God, that you love them, that you are not looking to condemn or crush anybody. And yes, you wanna help them, but you wanna help them in the deepest way possible by forgiving their sins. Jesus, thank you for being faithful all the way to the cross that we might have life and have it abundantly in you. We love you. In Jesus' name.